marathon traffic. But uh, it's good to be with you guys as we celebrate this third week of Advent. Um, I want to, as Cody mentioned in the announcements, I want to invite you back next Sunday and then also on Christmas Eve. We have a Christmas Eve service that we will be um, enjoying together. And, and, and I want to also just say real quick, these are great times of the year that you have a complete underhand pitch to invite somebody to church. So many people that live on your street and work in your office and go to school with your kids, or their, their kids go to school with your kids, they are already thinking about going somewhere. So why not just invite them to come here and join us for either next Sunday or Christmas Eve? And, and if you really want to push one or the other, I, I would suggest maybe Christmas Eve because it's going to be like under an hour. We're going to keep it short and sweet. It's going to be a lot of fun. Very uh, engaging and interactive for, for all ages. So just wanted to leave you with that before we get going here. Um, every couple of years uh, for the last probably, I'm trying to think now, probably about five or six years, I have attempted to diet. Um, the key word there is attempt. Because what happens is I get all gung-ho about losing weight and getting in better shape, and I start counting calories and trying to eat better, and without fail, every single time, I struggle to follow through on the best of intentions. Um, you can ask Matt if you need some evidence, because according to Matt, last spring, whenever I was dieting, he was like, when do you diet? Like, Tuesday nights and every fourth Saturday? Because every time we were together, he was seeing me eat like a cheeseburger and a Coke, you know? Um, it was always cheat day, evidently, I guess, whenever I was with you. Um, but... What, what I find in, in this attempt to diet and this failing at dieting is that it is a glaring example in my life of a way that I want to change but often don't experience real change. In my heart, I want to be different, but oftentimes I don't end up being any different. I don't really change even though I try to. And my guess is that we all desire change in some way. Some of us, it may be dieting. We may want to be skinnier or stronger. Some of us may want to better our financial situation, change the place that we are uh, with our resources. Some of us may want to be more disciplined and focused. Others of us may be too disciplined and focused, and our goals are to be more laid back and fun and to get out and actually remember that there's a whole world out there and not just whatever it is that we do for a living. Regardless of what it looks like, in life, I see a commonality around me in all of us, is that we want to be different. We want to change. But just like me and my attempts at dieting, a lot of times we don't actually change. We don't actually see ourselves become different, and that's a frustrating reality. It's frustrating that even though we really, really want these things, they don't happen and we end up being the same as we were before. The good news is that I believe there is a way to experience real change, and not just some surface type of change, and not some just little you know, uh, trappings and trimmings kind of change, but real, deep, lasting change that we can actually become different, and different in the kind of way that we're satisfied. And so today I want to talk about how we can experience real change. We're going to talk about how you and I can experience real change. So if you have a Bible, 
Go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. If you need uh, a Bible, you can grab a, a blue one there in that pew in front of you. And today we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 61. We're going to look at the first four verses, and then we'll jump down and look at 8 through 11. So 1 through 4, and then 8 through 11. And as we look at this, I believe we'll see how we can experience real change. As you're finding Isaiah 61, let me set the context for you. If you were here last week, we were in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, the writer is addressing uh, people who are discouraged in a season of being in Babylonian exile. They've been kicked out of their land. They're wondering if their relationship with God has been destroyed. They're wondering if they have any hope for the future. In today's passage, we are now 21 chapters later, and he's speaking to people that are in a different spot. These are people who have left exile. They've come out of captivity. They've been delivered, and now they are doing the best that they can. They are seeking to hold fast to God's covenant. They are desiring to be faithful to God in their daily lives, and so he speaks to people who have already been delivered and are trying to follow after God. That's the, that's the context of where we're going. And so as we read these words, we'll kind of keep that in mind. But I want to pray together, and then I'm going to ask you when we're, when we're done praying to stand with me as we read this. So let's pray. God, we are grateful to be here together today as we are each week. We come in here um, needing to be with you, needing to hear from you. Uh, our hearts come in, some of us very empty, some of us struggling, some of us doing okay, but still there, there's angst and there's, there's lack, there's desire, there's this, this yearning for change. We come in here recognizing that things are not as they should be and not as we want them to be. Even though we've been delivered and even though you have come into our lives, many of us, and we have experienced you, we still find that life is very, very hard. And where we are and where we want to be are not the same place. And who we are and who we want to be are not the same. And so today I pray that you would encourage us, that you would encourage each and every one of us with words from Isaiah the prophet. And, and most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with your very presence. I pray that for the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, you would come and be with us today. Um, God, we, we need you more than we need anything else. And so we look to you today. We give you this time. We ask that your spirit would have his way with, with the words of my mouth, the meditation of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and read this together. This is Isaiah 61. We'll begin in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now jump down to verse 8. 
verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give their, them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. All right, you can take a seat. So the speaker says that the spirit of none other than Yahweh, he says the Lord God, using God's personal name, Yahweh, the one and only God is upon him because he has anointed him for a very specific purpose, to bring good news to the poor. Okay, so in these, in these verses, there's, there's some things that we need to understand. There's some people and some ideas that we've got to kind of look at deep, a little deeper to understand what, what all this is about. First of all, I want to talk about who are the poor. Okay, we could take that at face value and we could say that that's people who don't have any money. I think they're included in that. But according to what we see in these verses, the poor are people who are lacking things, period, in a lot of different ways. So let's look at how... Uh, they define the poor for us here, and in, in Isaiah defines the poor for us in verses 1 through 3. He says, He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So the poor are the brokenhearted. He has pro sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The poor are the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The poor are those who are bound. And then in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So the poor are all who mourn. The poor are the people who are lowly, who are down and out, who are disadvantaged, who are desperate, despondent. They are the people who are at the margins of society, the people who are being taken advantage of. They are the, anybody who is struggling. You can fill in the blank. It doesn't have to just be financially. And this is really important as we walk through this because we need to hear these, these verses as applied to us today too. And we'll, we'll get there a little bit later. But I just wanna, I want us to understand the poor are not just people who don't have money. They're the, the, described as, as we just read. And so he's anointed to bring good news to these people, to these ones. And what is that good news? It says that he has come to bind up the brokenhearted. He comes to bandage the wounds, to take what is messed up and is hurting and what is broken and put it back together. He comes to restore and repair. It says that he comes to proclaim liberty, to proclaim freedom, to, to announce that their situation is not going to stay the same forever because he has come to rescue them. And then in verse 2, he says... He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're Israel and you're hearing these verses for the first time, you have a backdrop that we don't have if we don't understand a little bit of, of 
their history. When it says the year of the Lord's favor, instantly every Israelite would have thought of the year of Jubilee. That's why we read Leviticus 25 a little bit ago. And the year of Jubilee was a year that was consecrated to the Lord every 50 years. So it came around once every 50 years. And in that year, think about this. Like really, I'm going to say I'm slow so you can really try to get your mind to wrap around how much this means. Every 50 years, there was a year that came when every single slave was freed. Every single slave was freed. All debts were canceled. All debts, no matter the amount. All the land that had been taken, like say somebody got in a debt and now they're in trouble so they have to get rid of their land while they settle that debt or whatever. Any land that you didn't possess at that time was restored back to you. And then during that year, they rested the entire year, which is crazy. Imagine, like, I can't even go on vacation and not think about working. Imagine an entire year where you just have to, like, trust the Lord that he's going to provide and that what you have is enough. Pretty amazing things. So the anointed one comes announcing that this time, what they are waiting for, this year of God's favor, and it's really more than just a literal year, but, like, an era of God's favor has arrived. He comes announcing that it's coming, it's here. And what does God's favor look like? We talked a little bit about what it looks like in verse 1 with proclaiming that the brokenhearted will be bound up, or to bind, bind up the brokenhearted, set at liberty those who are captives. And then in verse 2, it says that he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To comfort all who mourn. And then verse 3 expands on this idea. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So here are people who are struggling, who are down and out, who are depressed, who are literally just completely devastated. And he comes to change their complete situation, to replace all the sadness with joy, to replace all the mourning with comfort, to replace everything that is gone wrong with something better. And the way I think that we can understand this most clearly and simply is this. The anointed one comes to bring good news that he will change everything. And most importantly, that he will change everything about them. He comes to bring complete and utter renovation and restoration. Now, I want you to picture something with me. It's the first century. You've gone to the temple, or the synagogue, I'm sorry. So kind of like we gather here at church, probably looked a little different, probably didn't have PowerPoint on the screen. But imagine you've gone to the synagogue, you're living in the first century, and that day... This teacher, who murmurings are traveling around your region, that, man, this guy's crazy. Have you heard about some of the things he's doing? He's healing people. He's saying all kinds of wacky things. He's, we really don't know what to do with him. And while you're in the synagogue that day, this man walks up. He grabs the scroll of Isaiah, turns to this passage that we're reading, and shares, really, he, he shares mainly the first part. 
the good stuff. He doesn't talk about the whole day of vengeance stuff. He doesn't go there. He just reads the, the really positive stuff. And then probably pauses for a minute and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's not just like, hey, here's the fulfillment. It's like, I am the one who is coming to change everything. Anybody who understood Isaiah 61 in that, on that day would have been absolutely blown away. They would have just been completely like, what? We have been waiting for hundreds of years for prophecy, for something, some sign of hope. And then this obscure dude walks up to the front, reads a scroll, and says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. They would have just been completely floored. Talk about an example of, you know, the, the rhymers, the rappers, when they, like, get done, they drop the mic. Like, Jesus putting the scroll down was the ultimate dropping of the mic. Like, you can't drop the mic any harder than that. Jesus is the anointed one who comes to bring good news to the poor. And once again, it's not just the financially marginalized or hurting. It's all of those who are hurting and lacking and needing something. Which in newsflash is all of us. That's who it is. He is the one who comes to comfort those who mourn, to set the captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And this is good news for us because we can experience real change because Jesus has come to bring real change. But here's the catch, okay? When we read this, it says that he comes to comfort those who mourn. Those who mourn. We have to mourn to receive the comfort that he comes to bring. We have to be willing and ready and really acknowledging that we need the change that Jesus offers us. Here's the thing. Everybody who has ever existed has known that something's wrong and they need change. But there are many, 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 many people who will not mourn that in a way where they recognize, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing on my own. I cannot do this. Most people, including a lot of believers try to make it happen for themselves. We try to figure out a way to make it work. Instead of mourning over our sin, a lot of us try to manage it and try to just kind of white-knuckle our way and just overcome it. Some of us try to run from it, just avoiding it at all costs, forgetting that, like, sin is inside of us and so, so we kind of can't run away from it. But neither of these approaches work. You can't run from your sin. You can't manage it. You can only be rescued from it and be changed. And so the only way that we can experience real change is found in Christ. And so if we want to experience it, it starts with mourning our sin, recognizing that it is a complete mess and that it has completely ruined us and left us incapable of fixing anything on our own. But then, not just getting to some place where we're kind of like stay stuck or despondent, but running to Jesus. Running to Jesus. Because a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to avoid bad stuff, but we don't replace it with Christ. We replace it with good efforts, with good works. And real change does not happen apart from Christ. So if we're going to experience real change, it starts with mourning our sin and running to 
Jesus. We need him. Look at verse 3 with me. So after announcing who this anointed, you know, announcing that this anointed one is coming, that he's coming to bring good news to the poor, in verse 3, at the second part of it, we see basically what's going to happen as a result of this. What, what fruit does it bring? In verse 3, we read in the second half, it, at the, it begins with that. It says, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ruins, the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So the effect of this anointed one coming, which we know as Jesus, the effect of his coming to bring change is that change is so total and so radical in the lives of those who have mourned their sin and have been comforted by him that the ones around them begin to take notice. It says they may be called oaks of righteousness, that they, the, the planting of the Lord, that people around them are recognizing that something is so different about these folks that they are strong like an oak, and they are evidently God's fr- fruit. They are something that he has wrought, something that he has done. So the anointed one comes to change us and everything about us, but he also comes to change our lives to exhibit this radical transformation. So it's not just an internal change where he comes in and transforms and renovates our hearts. He wants that to manifest itself and exert itself in an outward way, and it will. It's so so powerful that it will flow out of us so much that what we do will impress the people around us, and they won't say, oh, look at Jeremiah, look at Lexi, look at Carissa, so-and-so, look how awesome they are. They will look at us and say, look how awesome God is. God obviously did something here. His fingerprints are all over this. So why are these these people in Israel's day, why are they going to say that about Israel? Look at verse 4. It says very specifically, they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So the poor, those who had been marginalized, despondent, completely down and out, had been in exile in captivity in Babylon, are going to now come back and they themselves are going to build up the ancient ruins. When, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came into Israel and took them into captivity, before they took them back, they leveled the place, wiped out the temple, took everything out, wiped it off the map. And what he's saying is, no, these folks, they're not just going to stay there. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to change them. I'm going to completely restore things to where they are going to be the agents of which I'm going to restore their cities, and their nation. I'm not going to use somebody else. I'm going to use them, the very ones who were broken. His transformation in them will manifest itself through them. So God's plan for their lives doesn't stop with them. He also plans to use them for his purposes. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Talk about this gives us a little bit of the the understanding of why God's plan is this looks like this. He says, For I the Lord love justice, I hate robbery and wrong. 
I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Let's pause and stop there. So basically in verse 8, the point of it is basically this. What has happened to Israel, God's speaking on their behalf when he says that I, I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrong. He says, what Babylon has done to you is robbery and it's wrong, and so I'm going to restore it because that's who I am. I'm going to, to, to come in and change this situation and redeem it because that is who I am, and I hate injustice. I hate what has happened to you. Partially because they are his people, but partially just because what they've done is wrong, and God will not put up with it. And then in verse 9, let's look at this. This is really neat, especially coming out of our Missio Dei series. He says this, Their offspring shall be known among the nations. Anybody thinking of Abrahamic covenant right now? Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. So think about it this way. God sets Israel apart. They're going to be the the people by which all of the nations come to worship Yahweh. If they're off in Babylonian exile, they can't do that because they're stuck. They're in captivity. They're in slavery. So God's going to deliver them, and then he's going to cause them to be his agents of restoration so that it is an even more impressive and a powerful display of who he is, and it draws the nations to him. All of this is really about God getting the glory for how powerful he is and how good he is. So the reason he's doing all of this is so that they can continue to fulfill his plan for them of drawing the peoples to worship him. Now, when God God comes into your life and my life, and he comes in and he changes us and he transforms us. It never stops with us. It never is meant to be something that's just one work where we're the only beneficiaries of it. We're the only ones who reap the benefit. He wants and he will do a work of restoration and transformation through us, just like he did with Israel. When we see the Old Testament and we see the way that God manifests himself and he works and, and displays his power and his goodness. He may choose different ways of doing that, but it still is his pattern to be that kind of God. It doesn't change back there. It's still the same way that he operates. All of us, you and me, we've been restored by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, those of us who have trusted in him. And now we are his agents of reconciliation and restoration. We are heralds of the good news sent to proclaim and demonstrate with our lives the reality that God loves and restores, that he is the only one who can bring real change. Now here's the problem. If you're anything like me, what you do is you assess your life, you look at it, and you you say, how in the world could God use me? Not everybody else knows what's going on in your heart and in your mind, but we do. And it feels like this this heap of mess that we've got tucked away in a closet, locked up so that nobody else will see it, because if they do, there's no way anybody will ever respect us or love us or think that we can be used by God in any way. But that's not the way it works. God doesn't look for us to be perfect. He doesn't look for us to be perfect bright and shiny and and all, you know, fakely put together. 
he wants to use us in our brokenness to make a difference to those around us. He wants people to see this ongoing transformation in our lives and recognize that he's doing something there. Because when people see somebody go from somebody who's addicted to alcohol to, you know, sometimes the story is God's in his greatness and grace rescues somebody like that. But a lot of times that's not the case. And it's an ongoing process. But he still gets glory if you, if you drop the bottle one sip at a time and eventually you walk away from it. It's still his work whenever he sets people who are bound and addicted free. And so if you're like me, what you look for is absolute, complete, total restoration, absolute freedom from sin before you think God can use you. And the church has propagated this idea that only those who have their stuff together are fit for God's work. Those are the only people he wants to use. And that's not true. What we see in this story is he takes these ones who are down and out, who are completely despondent, who are a wreck, and then he hands them a hammer and says, hey, we're going to rebuild your city. Come here. Get in on this. I've changed you. I want to use you to help other people see that that's what I want to do for them and in their lives if they will come to me. God wants us to be living, breathing examples of his power and of his grace. And here's the thing. I was thinking about this this week, and this really has really, really, really changed things for me. That's not just God's plan. That's what he wants, and he's committed to it. I don't know about you, but in my own life, as I'm trying to follow the Lord and I'm trying to grow in righteousness and godliness and holiness and purity and all of the things that I know God calls me to. Sometimes I, some, I somewhere like get off in some completely horrible way of operating and thinking as if like God's against me and he doesn't want me to succeed at this thing that he calls me to. As if like he like just sent me some instructions and just stood off there and be like, find your way to me. Drop me off in the middle of the desert and gives me no water no, nothing, and he's just like, you, you figure it out. That's not the way this works. He's not just wanting to do these things. It's not just his plan. He wants to work with us, and he wants to be a part of this process, and he's committed to it. He will finish what he starts. When we look at that verse that says he is the author and finisher of our faith, God, his name is on the line in your sanctification, folks. Think about it that way. Just like you don't want to do, you, you, you care about the work that you do because your name is on it and it represents you. We are his workmanship. It says that in Ephesians 2. He is committed to us growing in our sanctification. He wants us to be people who exhibit this power and this change. So when you get down and you get frustrated and you feel like this sanctification process is a crawl or sometimes a standstill and it's not moving anywhere, don't believe the lie that God is just like, hey, figure this out. He is wanting, he is reaching down, he is there, wanting with everything in him to see you keep moving forward. And he's not expecting you to finish this thing. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And he is not waiting at the finish line. He's with us and he's providing everything we need. So let's not forget that he didn't come just to change us. He's committed to using us to change the world. And that's what I want to say. The second thing, if we're going to experience real change, there's a part of it 
There's a depth of it that only comes when we really actually trust God to use us and we actually join him in his work of restoration and redemption when we are an agent of his reconciliation and his work. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 real quick. So he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So the result of all this change that the Messiah brings, the result that Jesus comes of what Jesus comes to do is joy. But notice here that joy is found in a particular place. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will, my soul shall exult in my God. It's God is the one that joy is found in. It's not just the work that he does. It's in him himself. But why is he the one that this joy is sourced in? Because he's the one who gives salvation. He clothes us in righteousness as it talks about in these verses. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we were looking at Revelation 19. When we come face to face as the bride of Christ with our bridegroom at the great wedding banquet, on that day, we're not dressed in our own righteousness. We're dressed in the righteousness that he purchased for us with his blood. That is reason to rejoice, to say, I've got no shot, but I'm going to be provided for, and you're going to give me what I can't have and make and manufacture on my own? You're going to bless me with the very thing that I need most. That leads to joy. And so that's why these verses, this chapter closes on this note. The result of all this change, the result of being used by God to bring change and be an agent of change is joy. Now, some of us know that God is the source of joy, but we don't experience joy. And that seems weird. Like, to to actually know, to mentally know, okay, this is where I go to find what my heart needs, and then to not experience that. There's a gap there. Why is that? I think that a lot of that comes from the reality that we don't really go here. We don't really go to God as the source of joy. We know he's the source of joy, but we go to a bunch of other things, thinking that those things will satisfy. So we're kind of like practical polytheists. Like we believe in God, but we worship a bunch of other stuff. Whether it be food, or sex, or money, or whatever else, security. All these things that we try to find something to satisfy our hearts in, and they don't fill us. And that's because we were made by an infinite, eternal God who gave us a heart that was created to be in relationship with him. Our heart was made to operate, if you think of it as kind of like an engine or a, I'm not a mechanical type person, uh, whatever, just think of it as an engine. The gas that our heart runs on is the love of God. We cannot fill it with anything else and get where we want to go. We can't find that life works unless we are 
looking to God and God alone as our source for everything. And so if we're going to experience this joy that we read about in the Bible and we kind of wonder, why do I not practically taste that on a daily basis? We've got to get to a place where we don't start, you know, where we stop looking to God and these things. We've got to repent of our idolatry and our practical polytheism and get to a place where Christ and Christ alone is what we're after. Listen to this quote, and then we're going to close. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, The greatest joy is to those who know Christ as a Savior. The further you submit yourself to Christ the Lord, catch that, submit yourself, to Christ the Lord, the more completely you know him, the fuller will your happiness become. I like this part a lot. The great deeps, the great fathomless deeps of solemn joy, which glisten and sparkle with delight, are for such as know the Savior, obey the Anointed One, and have communion with the Lord himself. You will never know the fullness of the joy which Jesus brings to the soul, unless under the power of the Holy Spirit you take the Lord, your Master, to be your all in all and make him the fountain of your intensest delight. We go to a bunch of fountains. There's one fountain. And until we get to a place where we only go to that one fountain, we will not experience the joy that we read about and we long for. But God's committed to this. He wants our joy. He wants you to have joy in him. We've got to find our joy in him alone. That's where we really will see change completely blow the roof off our lives and we will really see us transformed to a completely different person. If you want to really see your sanctification take off, pursue Christ and pursue him alone and watch the change that happens. That's what I think most of us are not experiencing. That's where we get off the ride. We never get to that place. And it's not, a, not that we arrive there and we stay there perfectly, but God's inviting us to continually come back to this place where we pursue him and pursue him alone. Let's pray.